Let's pray again together. Lord Jesus, we marvel at your great grace. For Lord, we were, when we were yet enemies, you died for us. Lord, we were weak, we were sinful, we were rebels against your holy will. Yet Lord, out of love and obedience to your heavenly Father, and out of love for your people, you came into this sin-stained world and died for your people, your bride, bearing the punishment that we deserve, becoming a curse for us on that cursed tree. Lord Jesus, we praise you that in you we have this great salvation. For Lord, when you cried out on the cross, it is finished. Lord, you accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. And Lord, even as we, on this Good Friday, roughly 2,000 years after that first Good Friday, Lord, we know what's coming. Lord, we know that it was impossible for death to hold you. For Lord, you were crushed and, and you suffered for our iniquities and you were raised for our justification. And so Lord, as your people who have been purchased by your vicarious death, we pray, Lord, that we would rejoice also in your life, for you have given us life. We thank and we praise you in your holy name. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of our God. Well, this morning, as we remember the death of Christ, we're doing something that I hope that you do, not just on Good Friday, but every day. As we gather together over the internet to remember the death of Christ, 
We're going to be looking at Romans 5, 1 to 11. But when we look at this passage, we're actually doing it backwards. On Sunday, I'm going to be preaching on the previous passage from Romans 4, verses 13 to 25, where Paul concludes his foundational discussion of justification. But in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Paul is moving on to discuss the results of justification. This is what we're going to focus on this morning, the blessings of our justification and its cost. Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests that this passage is the key to understanding Romans and that in it, it, it teaches that our salvation is absolute, complete, and final. In the first half of our passage this morning, Paul tells us what we have received in our justification. And in the second half, he reminds us what it cost. So in this, I see two key points in this passage. First of all, that God made peace with us in verses 1 to 5 because God made war with his son in verses 6 to 11. So first of all, God made peace with us, verses 1 to 5. Again, Romans 5, verses 1 to 11 is tied closely with what has come before. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've said so many times, when we see a therefore in God's word, we need to look at the previous passage in order to see what it's there for. And we're going to look at that on Sunday morning. But first notice that we have been justified by faith. We have been justified by faith. From the outset, we need to understand what it means to be justified. You might have heard people say that to be justified means just as if I'd never sinned. In other words, to be justified means to be pronounced not guilty. Well, that's helpful, but there's actually more to being justified than that. To be justified doesn't just mean to be pronounced not guilty. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It means to be made right with God. And Paul says here that justification comes through faith, since we've been justified by faith. Now Paul here is making an argument that he actually began back in chapter 3, verse 26 that it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then in chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham as exhibit A to demonstrate one who is saved by faith. And we're going to talk about Abraham's faith on Sunday. Well, what is faith? Well, normally I would go to Hebrews chapter 11, where we read that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. However, I was helped by Howell Jones in the book on Hebrews that we've been studying in our men's and women's Bible study, where he says that Hebrews 11.1 1 is not a definition of faith, but it's a, de- it's a description of faith, of the need that is being addressed in that particular context. So faith in this context, what Paul is talking about here, faith can be better defined as an intellectual assent and trust in the objective truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in other words, faith is belief in and reliance on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. 
So then we're justified by faith. And and then with that foundation, let's consider Paul's main point in verses 1 to 5, what we have received in our justification. First, see that we have received peace with God. Fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, you and I have peace with God. You and I have peace with God at this very moment. Now, that wasn't always the case. You and I were once at war with God. Everything you and I did, everything you and I said, everything you and I thought was rebellion against God. Now, it might not have been conscious rebellion, but the fact that God was not in your consciousness is further evidence that you were in rebellion against God. You were at war with God, and God was at war with you. Maybe there's some who are listening who are still at war with God because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. Well, if that is you, you also can have peace with God through the faith that I was just speaking about. You too can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. But Christian, for you, no matter what has happened in your life, no matter what is happening in your life, no matter what will happen in your life, no matter how sinful you've been, no matter how challenging your circumstances, no matter what trials you may face in the future, you have peace with God. And again, this is through Christ, through faith in Christ, for faith in, in who he is and what he has accomplished. And that peace came at a tremendous cost. Now there are, however, those who proclaim false peace. Jeremiah warns of false prophets and false priests in Jeremiah 6.14. He says that, that they have healed the wound of the daughter of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And these false prophets and false, false priests are deceiving people into thinking that everything is fine. They're soothing people's consciences and quieting their fears by declaring that people are at peace with God when that is not the case. Wonder, can you think of any false prophets and false priests in our day who are telling people that they have peace with God when they are not? There are many popular preachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are ear ticklers. They're the ones that the Apostle Paul warns about in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, there is no peace with God without the gospel. But we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have obtained peace with God and we've also obtained, if you look at verse two, access into grace. Access into grace. Now the access here refers to the access we have to God himself. 
It refers to the introduction to God that we have through Jesus Christ. Again, it is by Jesus Christ. And again, it is by faith. We don't have to do anything to receive access to grace. If you have to do something in order to receive access into, into grace, it is no longer grace. We simply believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So through Christ we have access. This access is an ongoing, continual access based on what Christ has done. And we stand in this grace. We don't stand in our own strength. We don't stand in our own righteousness. We stand before God because we stand in God's grace. So then, through our justification, we have peace with God. We have access into grace. And we also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look at the second half of verse 2. Again, think back about yourself in the past. And think about even yourself at the present. Romans 3.23, we all fall short of the glory of God. One of the best definitions of sin is to miss the mark. It's, it's like shooting an arrow at something, and unless it is a perfect bullseye, you're missing the mark. It's sin. And even to miss the mark by a micrometer is sin. We all fall short, woefully short, of the glory of God. And because sin has entered into the world, we don't see the glory of God in full effect. We live in a fallen world. Sin and death are all around us. The fact that we are in quarantine at the moment is evidence of the fact that we live in a fallen world. And so even though the heavens declare the glory of God, even though Jesus Christ is the image of the glory of God, the glory of God is not yet fully manifest. So we live in hope. We live in hope of the full revelation of the glory of God. We hope we will see God in His glory. Think about in the Old Testament how terrified people were about, about seeing God. Think about Manoah, who many of you read in the five-day reading plan this past week. Manoah, Samson's father, in Judges 13, 22, when he realized that it was, it was the angel of, of the Lord who had appeared to him to announce the birth of Samson, he said in Judges 13, 22, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. And you can see this all through the Old Testament. Even Moses could only see the hind part of God. And even at that, he could only see the, the hind part of God's glory. He had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock so that he wouldn't be utterly destroyed, even by the hind part of God. But we live in hope of the glory of God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we anticipate the full manifestation of God's glory as it comes through the return of Christ. You see, the, the glory of God is closely connected with Christ. In Colossians 1.27, we read that, that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So we live in hope of Christ's return when sin and death are fully and finally defeated. 
and then we will share in his glory. This is our inheritance in glory. So then we, we see that we have peace with God. We have, we have access but with, to grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And more than that, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now, through the gospel, it, it, it really makes sense, doesn't it, that, that we, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We, we rejoice in a time where there's, there's going to be no more tears, where there's going to be no more pain, where there's going to be no more sin and no more death. But Paul is saying here that we even rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Now, think about this for a moment from the perspective of the unbeliever. The unbeliever cannot rejoice in sufferings. If an unbeliever rejoices in his or her sufferings, it is evidence of insanity. Some masochistic form of, of, of personal pain. The unbeliever is, is conscious, at least on some level, of the fact that he or she is the enemy of God. And so for the unbeliever, suffering is a reminder that they will one day face eternal conscious torment at the hands of the holy God. But the believer, on the other hand, is confident in the middle of suffering. Now, because in some cases we have a, a weak and, and an undeveloped theology, we're, we're unable to do this. And, and sometimes because of even the weakness of our flesh, it is very hard for us to do this. But, but as we think about God's word and the promises that God makes to us in his word, as we, as we look to God in the midst of suffering, the believer is confident. The believer is confident that he or she is an adopted son or daughter. And that the believer is confident, as we read in Romans 8, 32, that the he who spared not his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So as we think about the fact that, that God is as our Father in heaven, as we think about the fact that He is sovereign, that He is loving, that He is wise, we have an assurance, we have a, a confidence, and we even rejoice in our sufferings. And the believer knows, as we read about in Hebrews 12, that, that even if discipline happens, it actually, it actually leads to assurance. Because the believer understands that as a faithful heavenly father, God is disciplining the one that he loves. And so the believer rejoices in the midst of suffering, not as though suffering is an end unto itself, but because of what suffering produces. Because of what suffering produces. And so look at the latter half of verse 3 and into verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. The believer knows that suffering produces endurance and character and hope. Now you've heard of the golden chain of salvation. Why? Well, I call this the golden chain of sanctification. The golden chain of sanctification. And you can read about, the gold, about other manifestations of the, of the golden chain of sanctification in other passages, like in, in uh, James chapter 1 and in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. But here, Paul lists three. 
He talks about endurance, character, and hope. So what is endurance? We may have read about uh, Fr Frenchman Elisha Nakomovitz, who was a, was a marathon runner, and, and he figured out a way to run a marathon. Even though he was in quarantine, he ran an entire marathon, 42.2 kilometers, 26 miles straight, never leaving his six-meter-long, 23-foot balcony. He ran a whole marathon on his balcony. Well, that's, that's one form of endurance. Or this past week, you may have read about American Mike Wardian, who, who won the Quarantine Backyard Ultra Marathon by running over 422 kilometers, doing laps of his block. Over 63 hours, he ran without stopping. 422 kilometers. That is a form of endurance. But the endurance that's being spoken of here is even more of a superhuman form of endurance. It's perseverance. It's not giving up. No matter how challenging a tri the trials we face, no matter how difficult our external circumstances, we persevere because of our internal and eternal circumstances, because we're running for the prize. We're running for a heavenly reward. So that's endurance. Well, endurance, Paul tells us, produces character. Produces character. Character essentially means being, being approved of on the basis of a trial. It, it's like metal that goes through the fire and is purified. I've used this illustration before from Malachi 3.2. This idea of, of a refiner's fire where the, the refiner heaps, heats up gold and then skims off the impurities. And then he does it again. He heats it up and then skims off the impurities. And he does it again and again until he sees his face reflected back to him in the molten gold. Well, that's character. And character doesn't happen when, when things are, are cool and calm in life. In order for character to be produced, the, 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 the metal has to be heated up. You have to go through the crucible of trials in order for endurance to produce character. Well, and then Paul tells us that character produces hope. Now, broadly speaking, hope is, is looking forward to, to that which is with to looking forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. Well, as we understand for the for the Christian, even though we, we have good and beneficial things to look forward to because of common grace and because of the good blessings that God is pouring out upon us in Christ, for the Christian, our hope is not in this life. We we have this hope of these, these things that God has prepared for us, that, that eye is not heard or, or seen or ear is not heard or is not even entered in the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. This is the hope that we have in Christ. This is the hope that our, our brothers and sisters are enduring under as they face severe persecution around the world. This is the, the hope that, that is being produced in us as we deal with the the. the ramifications and even the possible ramifications of the outbreak of COVID-19. 
that we're seeing in us, we're, we're, seeing, we're seeing endurance and character and hope being produced in us as we let go of the things of this life and as we look forward to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We're like those in the Hebrews Hall of Faith who are looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Hebrews eleven sixteen. But there's one more link to this golden chain of sanctification. The fact that hope does not put us to shame. Brothers and sisters, genuine Christian hope never puts those to shame who have laid hold of it. Well, what does it mean that, that hope never puts us to shame? Well, it relates back to the hope of glory that we saw back in verse 2. Again, think about our persecuted brothers and sisters who are being persecuted around the world because of the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. They're being shamefully treated, but they're never put to shame. As the scripture says in Romans 9.33 and 10.11, quoting Isaiah 49.23, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And one of the greatest blessings that I have as a pastor who's stuck around in this church coming up on, on 10 years, is that I see this happening. I see in, in your lives, I see endurance producing character and character producing endurance. And I see that this, and, and endurance producing hope, and I see that this hope is, is not, it will never be put to shame in you. I, I see this happening in your lives. I see you growing in these things. I see you enduring difficult trials. I, I see you, you looking to Christ. I see you being changed. I see your character being changed. I see your hope growing so that, that even when your circumstances ha have not been alleviated, you are still hoping in Christ. But this is a blessing not just for pastors. As you take the time to get to know one another in the church family, you see this happening and your faith is subsequently encouraged as you see their faith. As you see the others around you growing in endurance and character and hope. You also are spurred on to love and good deeds. This is one of the blessings of being part of a church family and a, a, a vital and integral part of the church family by, by taking full advantage of what it means to be part of the local church. So why is this the case? Why is it that these things happen? Why is it that, that um, endurance produces character and character produces hope and, and hope doesn't ever put you to shame. It's because the Holy Spirit has been poured into our, because of God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Because we are the recipients of the love of God and, and not just the love of God through the Holy Spirit but all of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things are poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. So these things we have all received as part of our justification through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, now with the second half of the passage, Paul tells us what Christ did to make it possible. 
So God made peace with us in verses 1 to 5 because God made war with his son, verses 6 to 11. So first we need to consider what we were. We need to consider what we were. The beginning of verse 6. We were weak. We were weak. Now weak in this context doesn't just mean not strong. Weak doesn't just mean you've got to push a little bit harder to, to lift that bar when you're doing weights. Being, being weak means that you were completely powerless. Completely powerless. Completely unable to do anything to save yourself. In Romans 6, we're told that we were slaves to sin. In Ephesians 2, verse 5, we're said that even when we were dead in our trespasses, so you weren't just weak, you were a slave, and you weren't just a slave, you were dead. You were dead. Completely unable to do anything to save yourself. Completely unable to do anything to please God. And Paul continues in verse 6 that we were also ungodly. Again, this just isn't a matter, this isn't a matter of degrees. This doesn't just mean less godly, it means completely ungodly. It means without any godliness whatsoever. And that was you, and that was me. Again, from Ephesians 2, that you and I were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. We were weak. And we were ungodly. Look at the second half of verse 6. We were weak and we were ungodly. And Christ died for us. Now as if that is not enough to bring us to our knees, Paul drives the point home in verse 7. Paul says that one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. I'm reminded of, of Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. Now, the two cities in the novel are London and Paris prior to and during the French Revolution. And the two main characters in the story are the French aristocrat, Charles Darnay, who is virtuous and noble, but gets caught up in the violence of the French Revolution and is, in, is, in lo is, is locked away in prison, awaiting the, his decapitation by the guillotine. So he is, is the first main character, and then the, the other main character is Charles Darnay, who was virtuous. Sorry, who is rather Sidney Carton? Rather, he's he's Sidney Sidney Carton is the reprobate alcoholic lawyer, who just so happens to be the spinning image of Charles Darnay. Now, spoiler warning: Sidney Carton switches places with Charles Darnay in that prison, facing execution to save. Darnay. The novel finishes with the words of, of Carton as he waits his death. You probably know this, this quote. This is from, from the end of A Tale of Two Cities. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I've ever done. It is a far, far better rest I go to 
that I have ever known. This is one of the most gallant sacrifices that can be found in literature. It's also an exceedingly rare sacrifice. But as rare as it is, it is possible, it is possible to make that sacrifice. It does happen. People do give up their lives for righteous and good people. But what Jesus did is infinitely greater. In a tale of two cities, the rogue gives up his life for the righteous man. But Jesus Christ gives up his life for us. The righteous gives up his life for rogues. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we need to stop here and meditate on the staggering truth that Paul is communicating here. It should blow your mind. God loves us. God loves you and me so much that he poured out his holy wrath on his son for us. Don't let your familiarity with this truth diminish its glory. That God loves you and me so much that he poured out his wrath on his son in our place. And so then what was the cost of our salvation? Verse 9. Since then, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's a trail of blood through the Old Testament that points to the blood of Christ poured out on the cross. We have been justified by his blood. But it's not just the physical agony of crucifixion at the hands of lawless men that has purchased our salvation. Many men died on the cross. But in Jesus Christ, again, the wrath of God was poured out on his son. Jesus Christ became the sin bearer. The sinless son of God bore the sins of his people in his body on the tree. And the Father poured out all of his holy and just wrath on his Son in our place. Matthew 27, 46, where Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The God-man felt being forsaken by the Father because of our sins. We have been saved from the wrath of God by the wrath of God. That is the love of God. Everyone knows John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone knows John 3.16, but few people understand the weight of John 3.16. God gave his Son. But he didn't just give him up to walk on the earth. 
God gave up his son to death at the hands of wicked men. And even more than that, God gave up his son to his holy wrath. This is what it means that God gave his son. And Jesus Christ, when he gave up his life, he didn't live, give up his life for good people. He gave up his life for his enemies. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We were hostile to God. Every breath was rebellion against God. But we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We became friends with God because God became the enemy of his son. Now I know this is Good Friday and I know that on Good Friday most of our focus is on the death of Christ. But we can't focus on the death of Christ without considering the life of Christ. We're going to talk about this on Sunday, how the, the, life, of, the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ was for, also for our justification. Now, although the life of Christ prior to the crucifixion is, is essential for our salvation, because imputed righteousness through his righteous life is a necessary and fundamental part of the gospel. It's half of the gospel. But here, when Paul says that we're saved by the life of Christ, this probably refers to, to, to Christ's resurrection and his intercessory work for believers. Now we're going to focus on the resurrection more on Sunday, but, but as, as Mount says, that the, the author of Hebrews said that Christ always lives to intercede to those who, for those who come to God through him. Hebrews 7.25. It's, it's also in Romans 8.34. We talked about that last week as we considered the prayers of Jesus. said that Jesus hasn't finished praying. He's still praying. He's, he's still interceding. And this is part of what is required for your salvation. The fact that Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for you. Mouse continues. In the immediate context, the promised deliverance is more than eschatological. It is a daily deliverance from the power and dominion of sin. God has made every provision for us to live out our lives in holiness. His abiding presence provides the power to break free from the control of sin. Romans 6, 18. So we have been saved by the death of Christ and we've been saved by the life of Christ. But as Paul finishes in Romans, 11, 5, Romans 5, 11, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. And more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received reconciliation. From Tom Schreiner, the capstone of the believer's experience is boasting and exulting in God himself. Thereby he receives glory and praise that sinful human beings have so long denied him. We were once God's enemies. We were once rebels. We were once withholding from God the worship that he so rightfully deserves. But because of the gospel, we have been set free to rejoice in God through God. We were sinful. We were corrupt to the core of our being. But we have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We have been reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. 
God made peace with us, verses 1 to 5, because God made war with his son, verses 6 to 11. This is the glorious gospel. But again, you can't have the death of Christ without the love of Christ. And on Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, we're going to remember the first Lord's Day. When we consider afresh that our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we praise you for the glorious gospel. For in the gospel, we see your glory. And in the gospel, we are set free from our bondage to sin and set free to glorify you by your work in and through us. So help us, I pray, to think about these things not only on Good Friday, but every day. Help us to think about your resurrection, not just on Resurrection Sunday, not just on the Lord's Day, but on every day for the glory of your name and for our good and our upbuilding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.